Welcome to the AT Parenting Survival Podcast, where you get help and guidance through the chaos of parenting a child with anxiety or OCD. This show is for educational purposes and is not intended to replace the guidance of a qualified professional. Here's your host, child therapist, Natasha Daniels. Well, hello there, and welcome to another episode of the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. Today, I want to talk about you. Periodically, you know, we have to talk about ourselves because our kids don't live in a bubble. So I want to talk to you today about the power of helping your child's anxiety or OCD. I just didn't want it to be a really long title (laughs) by focusing on your own. And when I say that, I don't mean if you have necessarily a disorder, but we will talk about that. So don't turn off if you're like, well, I don't have anxiety or OCD. So this episode is definitely not for me. It is. It's for all of you. Because regardless of whether you have your own true anxiety or OCD issue, disorder, or how you interact with your child's anxiety or OCD, they're both important. And so I want to talk to you today about how we can focus on ourselves and how that has so much power in helping our child's journey. And I want to explain to you how and how to do that. Often we feel powerless because we don't have a say in the pace of our child's progress, pace of our child's treatment. Um, We don't have any say in their motivation, although we can encourage it. We ultimately don't get to choose how motivated they are. That's something they have to do. We can try to foster it. So a lot of parents wind up feeling powerless, feeling like I don't know what I can do. And there are things that you can do. And we have to sometimes focus on those things. Now, some, you might have your kid is just taken off. They're like a rock star. And maybe you haven't done your part And partly you might be telling yourself, I'm not doing my part because I need to focus on my child. That's my front burner issue. And I want to talk to you about why focusing on yourself is just as, or not even more important than focusing on your child's progress and what your child is doing. Okay. That's what we're going to be discussing today. Before I get started, I do want to thank NoCD for continuing to support the show and sponsor the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. For those of you that don't know what NoCD does, they provide online OCD therapy in the US, UK, Australia, and now even Canada. And you can schedule your free 15-minute consultation to see if NoCD is the right fit for you and your child at no cost. Just go to treatmyocd.com. I always say, I think if you even suspect that your child might have OCD or if it runs in the family and you're seeing anxiety, but you're not sure if it's OCD or you think it's OCD, but you don't know, you can just get an assessment. It's not a commitment to therapy. And so you can go to NoCD purely to get an assessment and then see where you go from there. So I will leave a link in the show notes. Now let's talk about you. This topic came up because I have really been having to dig deep and push into my own stuff with my own fears, my own anxiety. And I'll talk about that as we kind of go through this topic. And it really highlighted to me, and I'll give you some examples as we go, but it really has highlighted to me on a personal level. I mean, I got this intellectually. I got it when I worked with parents in my practice, but there's a difference between getting it clinically, getting it because it's in a textbook or getting it because it's in your 55 minute hour with a patient or a client versus getting it because you're living it (laughs) and getting it because it's messy and you're like, oh shoot, I need to focus on myself or, oh my gosh, my reaction to that was really anxiety producing. That wakes you up on a different level. So the first thing I want to talk about is why it's important to focus on yourself and some of the things that can happen when you don't look inward and you're only looking 
outward. So I'm going to go over the things that are concerning that can happen. And then we're going to talk about the things that are positive that can happen when you do work on yourself. And we'll talk a little bit about what that might look like for you. Okay. So some of them, and this is not in any particular order, it's just how I brainstormed it. When you have anxiety or OCD issues yourself, we'll talk about that first, but that doesn't excuse the ones that are saying, oh, that's not me. Let me turn this off. We'll get to you guys. Don't worry about that. And you may have these things and not feel like you do. And that's why you also have to look inward because I've worked with many parents in my practice who, you know, I'll say, does anybody have anxiety or OCD in the family? And the the parents are like, nope, nope, nope. And clearly as I work with the parents, they have the same belief systems as the child, but they've normalized it. And so that's my first concern is the normalization of irrational beliefs and irrational thoughts. And so you have to look at your family as a whole. And this can be really hard if both you and your partner have some skewed beliefs. It is helpful and you may not find it helpful, but honestly, it is helpful if your partner or you versus your partner. So one of you doesn't have as many anxious thoughts or intrusive thoughts because OCD plays into this as well, depending on what you're dealing with at your house. So that you have a baseline of normalcy of what is maybe like non-anxiety based or non-OCD based beliefs. So I have worked with families where the entire family had intrusive thoughts and compulsions and it was normalized where it was perceived as normal or on a more general level, avoided things because they thought they were dangerous or they thought they were anxiety producing and they were more extreme than the norm. So take a look at yourself. If you normalize issues because you have them too, your child will never have the opportunity to separate themselves from their anxiety or OCD. So if they think it's normal to, and I don't want to give examples too much because I want this to be general and I want this to hit you. (laughs) And I don't want you to be like, yeah, I don't do that. So this isn't about me, but you'll know like what you normalize. I'll use me as an example because that's a safer thing to do. I have multiple themes going on in my house (laughs) and with myself, choking is one of them. And so I was cutting my kids' food into tiny little pieces way too long for a very long time because I didn't want them to choke. So I was normalizing a parent cutting their child's food. I was normalizing cutting it into tiny little bites, right? Because of my fears. So you have to ask yourself, what am I normalizing fear-wise? It doesn't matter if you have an anxiety or OCD disorder. Are you normalizing some things? And you could be normalizing them. And when I say normalizing, let me just try to speak English here. I mean, you're making it feel like that's what everybody does. Like it's normal. We all like wipe down. I'm trying to think of an example. It's hard with COVID. Spontaneous thought is not my friend anymore. My brain is much slower. Okay, I'm gonna move on to the next one because I can't think of a better example. We also convey in our body language and in kind of what we do in our planning, fear, even if our words don't. So you might say you're doing such a great job. You're being so brave. Now, sometimes I think we undermine that by saying, are you okay? Are you doing okay though? Are you hanging in there? That doesn't really create a vote of confidence. (laughs) And that's our own anxiety oozing through. And that might be because you don't want to see your child sad or anxious. This has been kind of an ongoing theme that I've picked out on the podcast lately. So you can kind of binge listen the last, I would say, four or five episodes, maybe not that far back. I don't know why I'm on this theme. Sometimes I get into like theme kicks and I definitely am on this kick, you know, focusing on like these outer things that impact anxiety and OCD. And one of them that we did talk about in the last few episodes was our expectation or our discomfort with our child not being happy or our child being anxious. And so even if you don't have anxiety or OCD, 
you might have a strong discomfort for your child being uncomfortable. That might provoke your own discomfort around your child's anxiety or OCD. And that comes from a lot of different places. And we did talk about this in prior episodes. I did one on compassion fatigue. In Dr. Shafali's episode, we talk about this. And then actually just last episode, in episode 217, we talked about building self-compassion in our kids. And I think we might've even talked about it there too. So it's been discussed a lot, but we have to be able to sit with our child's discomfort. And I know that is really hard for me at times. It depends on what the issue is. And so you have to look at like what issues make you uncomfortable. Are you more uncomfortable when your child is freaking out in public because that makes you feel like you're a bad parent? Or are you more uncomfortable when your child is doing something and sitting with discomfort around relatives? Or does it have nothing to do with other people? Like, are you uncomfortable when they're sad and you know they're not getting reassurance or they're not being able to do their compulsions or they're having to sit with their fear by going to bed by themselves or doing something and it makes you feel bad. It makes you feel like a bad parent because your actions are causing them distress, even though they are what the therapist says to do or the books say to do or what my podcast says to do, although I try not to be too preachy. Is that making you feel bad? You want to look at that, right? So that's one of them. The next one is that when we don't focus on ourselves, we also can create a lifestyle of avoidance instead of walking towards fear. And so it is not your child's journey in a bubble. There's five of us and one child has an identified anxiety or OCD issue and it's their journey. Like they're in therapy and we're all here to support them and did they do their exposure today? And it's all about them. We don't really want it to be like that. We want to foster a family culture of we walk towards our fear. We do difficult things. We face our fears head on at whatever level we're capable of doing. And so when you create that as your family culture, yes, it's easier to do that when there's multiple disorders in your house or you as a parent have an anxiety disorder or you have OCD that definitely makes it easier. But even if nobody else has that going on, you can still create that community feeling in your house of this is what we do. This is what the Daniels do at our house. Now, I mean, yeah, it helps that we all actually have disorders, (laughs) but even if we didn't, I would still talk like this to my kids and I would say, you know, I really don't want to go here, but I'm going to go through my fears or, you know, bugs are really scary, but I'm facing my fears and I'm doing this. Fear is a normal part of being human. And so all of us have fears. All of us have trepidation. All of us have moments where we want to avoid instead of do. And so We don't want to be preachy where we say, hey, I was afraid of that and I did it because that's actually worse than not saying anything at all. So it is how you deliver this, but it's saying, I know you have your struggles and I am facing my struggles too. And we don't want to minimize their issues or take away from that, but we want to open up communication and dialogue that we're all doing hard things. And I'll give you some examples I think I talked about this last episode. Last episode wasn't about compassion. I take that back. I'm sorry. Episode 217 was about ARVID and restrictive eating with OCD. So self-compassion, how to help your child grow self-compassion was episode 216. And then the other ones I was talking about, I think were 215 and 214. So go back a little bit farther. But I talked about this when we were at the Grand Canyon and my son was like deathly afraid of the edge And, you know, a lot of people, when I talked about this said, well, yeah, I mean, I'm afraid of the edge. The Grand Canyon is scary. And yes, it is legitimately scary. It was interesting in some of the responses that I got from talking about that. I could see the adult fears that came up 
And we weren't talking about being right on the edge. Now, he did do a challenge. I didn't tell him he had to, but he did do a challenge where he actually went in an area that was like kind of off a cliff. And that was definitely, that would be overwhelming for anybody because you're right on a cliff with like a little like wrought iron bar. So legitimately scary for a human being. But, you know, OCD and anxiety take it one step further, right? And so he could be across the street and was still afraid. So sometimes it's in the level of the extremeness of it that makes it an anxiety or OCD issue. But we were on a sidewalk that was quite a long way from the edge. We're not even near the edge. The rim trail, which is a beautiful trail that goes around the rim, but you are quite a way from the edge of the Grand Canyon. You have to kind of walk over to see it, or you can see it in the distance. Anyway, it's not scary for the average human being, unless you have a, like a, an extreme phobia. So he didn't even want to walk on like the left side. He wanted me to walk on the left side. And you know, eventually we had a conversation and I said, I'm terrified of heights too. And he was like, yeah, but not like me, not like it's anxiety. And I said, no, actually it is. And, and so it opened up conversation to show him that I do things that make me really uncomfortable a lot of the time. And we just opened up this conversation of this is uncomfortable for me, but it's less uncomfortable because I keep forcing myself to do these type of things. And so you want to have that conversation and you want to have that family dialogue that there's language that talks about walking towards your fears instead of towards avoidance. So that's the next one is really, you know, creating a lifestyle in your house. The next one, and I already touched on this, but I'll just re-highlight it. There's a huge barrier when you can't remove the accommodations that you're doing to grow the anxiety or OCD because you can't handle seeing their discomfort. That's a really big one. And so that's something to tackle. I was going to talk about the space program. Ellie Leibowitz's space program which it's called space, but it's not about space. Many of you have already heard it because it's very popular right now, but it's an approach where it's only a focused treatment approach where you remove the accommodations for your child's anxiety or OCD. So regardless of whether your child is motivated to work on their stuff, you remove the accommodations and your child can get better. He wrote the book, Breaking Free from Childhood Anxiety and OCD. And he has kind of created this whole like space program that's kind of growing and growing and clinicians are getting trained in it. And I've been trained in it. And you won't be successful in that program if you don't deal with your own anxiety. Because when you remove some of those accommodations, you have to sit in discomfort just like we ask our kids to do. And even if you're not doing the space program approach, which I actually have created an online study guide for the space program. And so it's meant to go along with the book. And I created it because I actually created for the AT parenting community. So those of you that are in the AT parenting community should be aware of that if you listen to my podcast. The AT parenting community is a membership community. So it's not like my general community. It's a paid group that I work with closely and I create things. Sometimes I create things for them besides my live classes and our Zoom calls and stuff. So I did create that for them because I was thinking, what do people ask me the most about in here that takes the most time? And I love just having resources because they get free access to one of my big online classes from my atparentingsurvivalschool.com class. So I have an online school that has all these classes that parents can take, kind of a DIY type of thing, or to support them with therapy. And it's nice because they get one of those for free when they're a member. And it's just nice to be like, just take my course and like it'll answer how to do exposures or take my course and you'll learn how to handle their anxiety. Or So it's nice, but the one thing I didn't have is when the parent says, my child's not willing to work on anything. And so I don't know what to do with that. 
And, you know, I was answering these very long-winded support to each member whenever they had a problem. And I thought, oh, it would be so good if I could just be like, here's this course, take this course. And so I created the study guide for that. And what I found, it's really good for partners to watch who don't want to read the book, or it's really good for people who are visual learners because I make my own worksheets and stuff. That is coming. I am actually going to put that in my online school so that people can purchase it who are not members and are not getting access to it for free. So stay tuned. That will come out beginning of August, I think. But that's not going to help you if you haven't worked on your own stuff. So you have to work on your own anxiety and sitting with the discomfort that a lot of treatment brings to our kids parents will sabotage. I've had parents in my practice sabotage exposures and challenges because they can't handle their child's discomfort. And I'm totally guilty of this. I do like to throw myself under the bus to bring in the human element and to let you know that even with all the knowledge and clinical skills that as a parent, I still fail to let you know that failure is part of success, right? So I feel like this has happened a lot with my son lately. So if you listen to the last episode, I really opened up and kind of went deep and vulnerable in our current battle with restrictive eating with OCD with my son. And a lot of times I will bail. He will be doing an exposure and he'll be like, he'll be crying and he'll be like, I can't do it. I can't do it. And I'll be like, then just forget it. Just forget it. You did a great job. Just forget it. And when I do that with him and every kid's different, and I'm not doing this for this intention, but it does happen. I'll say, no, I'm not going to give up. Or I'll say, just add water, which is one of his compulsions. Just add water to it. You know, you didn't do the other compulsions. You're still doing really good. No, I'm going to do it. It does tend to motivate him, but also to be a hundred percent honest, I'm not doing that always because it's a good clinical move. I'm doing it because I can't handle his distress. He's getting revved up. And for me, I don't like handling his anger. And so it's not that I can't handle him being uncomfortable. It's that I feel like it's going to start to be disruptive. He's going to get really angry. Maybe he's going to get discouraged, which concerns me, or he's going to start ruining the night, basically. Thankfully, my kids are well-trained because we have fostered this culture of walking towards our fears and not giving up and trying to stick with it, that more often than not, he will do it. And actually, I think my words actually motivate him. It's a weakness on my part. It's not my intention to motivate him, although it can sound really beautiful. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I'll see that the exposure that I crafted was too hard. And I talked about this last episode and I will purposely back down and say, let's shift this exposure and do it this way. But I'm talking about in the times where I'm like, don't worry about it, just forget it. (laughs) Don't we all do that sometimes? Well, maybe not, but I do. Like, don't worry about it, just forget it. And luckily he's strong enough now that he's like, no, which is good because we've fostered that in our family. Okay, so learning how to handle this comfort for yourself. The other one is, Sometimes when we don't deal with our own issues, we won't encourage exposures or challenges because we over-relate because they are our fears as well. And this has happened a lot in my practice where I will say, how will we have your child do this exposure? And the parent, whether they have anxiety or OCD will say, oh my gosh, well, I wouldn't even do that. Or that's horrible. Why would you do that? And it's too triggering for them. I've had parents who've had to walk out of my sessions because they couldn't watch their child do something because it was so triggering for them. And some of these parents would say they don't have OCD or they don't have anxiety. I would beg to differ, but you know, it's not my job to diagnose parents that come into my practice, but it's something for you to look at. Are there things that I don't encourage because it's too much? I'm trying to think of an example in my life to make this more concrete. You know, my daughter is my 17 year old. She is learning to drive. I really have not been able to encourage her to go out and practice because prior to my husband dying, I was already anxious about her driving. 
to be honest, she's always had a spatial issue (laughs) and she knows this herself. Although I feel like I shouldn't have highlighted it so much because now she's kind of, I'm hearing her say this and I really don't want her to own it. She had occupational therapy. She has sensory processing disorder. She kind of doesn't know her space, like her body. She's still actually, she's 17. She bumps into people all the time. And when we're walking, she can't pace herself. And so she'll often like hit someone's foot. And so my kids are constantly bickering when we walk anywhere. So like the Grand Canyon was really fun because that's all we did was walk. She'll tell people to move up or walk faster. And I'm like, no, you have to control your own space. (laughs) You know, like you don't control people around you. Anyway, imagine that issue and then put a car around that. (laughs) That freaks me out. Sometimes she's too close to the curve. Sometimes she's too close to the car. And I am already an anxious person. And I own that. I'm an anxious driver with a person who's not confident behind the wheel. My husband was a great driver, so he never bothered me. In fact, he always drove because I think my driving bothered him. (laughs) So even before he died, he was the one that was going to take her out. He was like calm as a cucumber. Like he was my yang to my yang. Like he was so calm. So I didn't go out with her and he'd be like, "Eh, she's doing okay. And then prior to him dying, we actually did pay for a person to do driving lessons with her. And then he passed away. And at that point I needed her to step up. I needed her to, to drive because I'm a very isolated person. I'm a very introverted person. The bottom line is we have no family out here and I have very, very limited friends. It's grown a little bit since Jimmy has died. But I'm still a very, not a lone person, but, you know, I have a small world of intimate people and most of them don't live in Arizona. (laughs) And so I didn't have anyone to take her out. But more importantly, I needed her to drive because, you know, when you lose a partner and you have nobody and you're pretty isolated, I know it's kind of weird because it seems like I have all these people who listen to me and I have all this great online support and this global support. But at the end of the day, I'm very alone. And that's okay. That's part of my journey right now. But scary on practical terms when you think of having a nine and 11 year old and being by yourself, who's going to drive them? Like, what if I get sick? Who's going to drive the kids to school? Or what if there's an emergency? What if I get in a car accident and my kids are home by themselves? Who's ever going to know that? So like a lot of my anxiety has been triggered since this death of just practical things. And so her being able to drive was going to be huge but I just couldn't do it. I know this is a long-winded explanation for this topic, but she really needs exposures. She needs to go out over and over again. And I couldn't encourage her and I continue. I can't say to her, go out and drive today. Do an exposure, go out to drive today. Like drive in the night because that's another exposure. Let's keep going because she has major anxiety around driving and she did before all this. I did not help. So when I was in the car and I didn't put my anxiety in check and I'm like, break, break, or move away from the curb. I created so much more anxiety that her driving got worse, not better. And she even said that. She's like, I get more anxious when I'm with you. And then I remember that and I think I'm not a good driver. So that's a perfect example of not putting my own anxiety in check and having it influence her anxiety, not only, you know, not improve it, but actually make it worse. And you can take that example and apply it to anything else that's going on in your house. Are there things that you're overreacting to because of your own fears? And it doesn't have to be your anxiety theme or your OCD theme. It could even just be, you just have a hard time stomaching it. So I wasn't going to be able to get my anxiety in check in the short term because I have too much on my plate dealing with grief. It's too much. I can't handle it. And then my son's restrictive eating is just too much. And so that just wasn't going to be tackled. And so the better way to handle it right now in the moment is to not go driving with her. But then that wasn't enough for my anxiety. My anxiety said, you should also not, not tell her to go driving. 
Because if you do and she dies, it's going to be your fault. You know, that's kind of what happens when you have a trauma or you have a death in your family and you already had anxiety. All those things come up like I can't handle any more guilt. I don't want to feel responsible for anything else because death, it often will make you feel guilty. You'll find a reason to feel guilty. I just can't handle any more on my plate. So I do not encourage her to go driving. Luckily, thank the goodness is I have fostered, and I didn't think I really did this with her, but I have fostered in our house this attitude of, if you give into anxiety and OCD, you're going to be paralyzed for the rest of your life. Like that's just how it is. And so there's a lot of fight in my kids. Thankfully, it's a bank account that we've deposited into, or I've deposited into all this time. And now we're taking some withdrawals. My kids are stepping up to the plate when I'm not. And that's what you want to do in your family. You want to create such a solid environment of this is what we do. This is why we do it. That your kids will be on automatic pilot when you can't show up, which has been really humbling to see my kids show up. My sister came into town for a week and also had major issues, fears of driving. And she went out with her, which thankfully I was so appreciative of. And really told her like, Hey, you really want to keep this up. You really want to keep driving. So she had that little bug in her ear. Anyway, she continues to go out. She continues to push it. She'll say to me, I don't want to go driving today. Or what should I do? Mom, should I go driving? And I still, and this is my own anxiety. I'll say, I can't tell you because it's a little magical thinking. I don't want to be responsible. If I say you should go out today or you should go to Starbucks or tell her where to go. I feel like God forbid she gets in an accident and she dies. Then it'll be my fault. (laughs) I have some work to do apparently. Yeah. What exposures and challenges are you not suggesting or not encouraging? And maybe this doesn't hit a nerve with you, but maybe it does. So look at yourself and think, hmm, what am I doing that's kind of like that in a different sort of way? Lastly, we can't fake our reactions. So you could say your words could be like, you know, we're so proud of you and you're doing hard things and go do that. But your face will convey how you really feel, even if you think it isn't. And so we really have to be all in when it comes to really embracing discomfort, embracing uncertainty. You know, I'm a work in progress with my daughter's driving, but there are other areas where I'm really confident. And, you know, and I have to say to myself, and actually with, even with my daughter, I've started to do my own work where I say, I don't control if people live or die. Like, that's not my choice. That's not my control. I don't get that choice or control. And so I have to let that go and say, this is her life. But I do have to like remind myself every time she goes driving and kind of accept worst case scenario and say, that may or may not happen. And I'll have to deal with that. It's not happening right now. Because one of my mantras is just today. (laughs) I say that a lot. I almost thought about getting that tattooed on my hand, but I'm not sure about that. I just say what's happening today, just today, right? What's in front of me? Not what if, but what is, right? What is? So use those tools, not only for your kids, but use them for yourself, regardless of whether you have anxiety or not. Like what is, you know? Well, what is, is she's out there driving. It's not that she's in an accident right now, right? Or my son is eating this. Yes. Maybe he's losing weight or maybe his eating has gone really backwards. But what is happening today? Just today, he is eating a lot of chocolate cake. (laughs) True story anything to get those calories on. So you want to not have a poker face, not fake it till you make it. Although some of us have to do that, but you want to genuinely start working on your own issues. So now we're going to pivot and talk about, okay, I get it, Natasha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Create a family culture of walking towards fear, working on my own issues. But that's all very, you know, philosophical. What does that mean in concrete terms? Thank you for asking. I will tell you. 
I think the first thing to do, and if you're into journaling, journal this. If you're not into journaling, don't. I always hate when therapists tell me to write things down because I don't like to write. I mean, ironically, I'm writing two memoirs right now. I had finished a memoir. It was done. It was in editing. And then Jimmy died. And yeah, so that book has to be totally revamped. I'm writing two memoirs right now about love and anxiety and relationships. You'll see. It'll come out. Who knows? Maybe in a decade, but I'm working on it. So I do like to write and I've written many books. So you don't have to write it down if you don't want to. Sorry. Very long-winded. But you have to find your method. So if it's not writing it, maybe it's like finding a quiet space, lighting a candle and really going into yourself. Maybe it's sitting in the shower. Maybe it's going for a walk. I have found that you really want to find a space to do this type of stuff. And when I say stuff, I just mean like when you're going inward, when you go inward, whether you are soul searching, like I have been, or you're working on your fears and your anxiety or your OCD, or you're working on your relationships with people and you have to go inward, you really want to create an atmosphere conducive to that. And you have to find your own beat on what that is. I really never did that until Jimmy died. I never really had a method to go inward until I was like sinking and drowning and all those things. And I had to find a way to reach myself. I know that sounds really weird, but you might already have something and it's not with a therapist. I mean, that's different work, but you have to do this work on your own and you have to have a relationship with yourself and how you talk to yourself and how you are honest with yourself and how you are kind and forgiving and compassionate to yourself and how you have this ongoing relationship on how to foster and grow and develop in all areas of your life. So figure out what that is for you. For me, it's actually walking. I'm not a walker. I never have been a walker, but walking in the desert, looking at the bunnies, looking at the birds, something about the rhythm of the walking, it puts me kind of in like this state of being able to have more awareness. Um, It might be sitting in the shower for you. It might be lighting a candle that smells really good and locking your bedroom door and sitting in there for an hour or two um, if you have the privilege to do that. So find what it is for you. And then you want to say to yourself, what are my fears? Don't think about your child right now. Like, what are my fears? What scares me to the core? And write those or think those, right? What are your themes? I don't care if you have a disorder or not. You have themes. There are things that freak you out. Every single human being has a fear. What are yours? I will use me again as an example. So if I sit there, I think about my fears. Don't think about your child because then you'll start to relate it to your child and it will be kind of their fears and you're kind of piggybacking on what maybe triggers you. We'll get there. First, you want to think about what are your core fears? Mine are being alone, ironically, right? So universe has like a way of making you face your own fears. So being alone, being rejected, being judged, being ostracized. Those are my core, core fears. Yeah, I have other phobias and stuff like choking is a scary thing for me. I don't like bugs. I mean, there's lots of things that bother me, but my core, core fear is rejection and aloneness. What's yours? Because then you want to say, how does that play out? Now you might have a fear that is unrelated to your child's, but you might even be putting it on your child. So like when my son comes home and he has no friends, or he says, I just sat at recess. My core fear of aloneness is triggered. And my reaction to that is probably over the top. I worry about it. I carry that statement longer, probably all night long, when he left that statement in the car and moved on. And I actually think I created a little bit of that fear in him because I'll say, well, who do you play with? Or is it hard because your friend was absent for three days? Who did you hang out with? And so my line of questioning is based on my own core fear. And I do feel like I've kind of created an awareness 
that may or may not have been there before because that really wasn't his thing. He didn't really worry about that. So what's your core fear? How does it play and interact in your life and in your relationships? What things do you avoid? And trust me, kids pick up on these things. Whether you think they do or not, they will notice. What does your fear do behaviorally to you? What things do you avoid? What things do you say? What things do you do? How does it shape your life and your world? And then you want to say, how am I going to work on these fears? Regardless of whether it interacts with your child's anxiety or OCD or not, we have to walk the walk. We have to talk the talk. It's just like, I feel like so passionate about what I do, not because I'm a therapist, but because I'm a mom. And so I feel like I wouldn't be able to do what I do with you guys in my podcast, in my membership, in the AT parenting community, in my online class, if I didn't walk the walk. Like that's the part that gives me the passion. And there are good therapists that aren't living this experience, but I feel like for me, I always have to talk where my heart is and I have to talk through experience, just how I teach and everyone's different, but I would feel like a hypocrite, not that other therapists should, but I personally would feel like a hypocrite if I told you what to do with your child's anxiety or OCD and I didn't do it myself. Oh, you should, you know, pull back the accommodations or you should be doing exposures with your child. And I never did any of that. I would feel like a hypocrite. I make mistakes. I'm not always on top of things. I let exposure slide for a while. Sometimes we don't do any work at all, but I'm honest about it. And I I try to talk the talk. And I think that that genuineness and that authenticity is what makes people keep coming back to talk to me about these things. It's what makes people listen to my podcast. It's what makes people join my community because they know that it's coming from a very genuine place. So to put that on a smaller perspective, it's the same thing in your home, right? You have to walk the walk and talk the talk for your child so that they can resonate with you and they can say, she does this stuff herself or he does this stuff himself. Like I see my mom doing this stuff. I see her doing hard things. We're all in this together. You don't have to have a disorder and, you know, having doing exposures to live a life where you are walking towards fear and discomfort at times instead of away from it. That's a family philosophy. So you get some props and validation from your kids that you are not just operating from this authoritative perspective of telling your child what to do and that you know everything, but you are in the thick of it with them. Yes, you're still a parent. You're still helping guide them, but that you're living your life this way too, because fear is not a child issue. It's a human issue. And how you interact with fear, how your partner interacts with fear. Although don't focus on your partner because that's their life, not yours. We're focusing on you because we can easily get squirreled on that comment. But how you show up for fear every day will model how your child will show up for fear every day as well. It is something that we can do. It's a gift that we can give our kids. And it's interesting because it will reflect back. I'll give you an example. So I've given you two, you know, where my son has not given up when I've been like, just, it's fine. Just forget the exposure, right? And he shows up. Now, it wasn't always that way, but he is showing up. Or my daughter, my 17-year-old, I said to her, you know what? Just forget it. Just learn how to drive in your 20s. Like, let's just put a pause on it. I can't handle anymore because it was so triggering to me. Let's just pause it. And she has not. She continues to go out every day. She continues to push herself. It is a major exposure for me every time she leaves because I have a very small little group of people in my world now. And, you know, death is a very real thing that happens. So anyway, she's doing exposures for me (laughs) because she's triggering my anxiety and I have to sit with the discomfort. If I told her don't go out and drive or try to encourage her to 
just, you know, you've done so good. Just take a few days off because it was triggering me. That would be absolutely the worst thing for her. So I have to learn how to sit in my discomfort. Um, I'll give you another example really briefly, and then we'll wrap this up. So my youngest daughter, my nine-year-old, was having nightmares about her dad, I think. Anyway, she wound up sleeping in my bed. I think there were a couple of nights where she wasn't feeling well. And so my core fear is being alone. We've raised the kids to never sleep in our bed. And there's nothing wrong with having a family bed. I am very open to everybody's different parenting styles. But in our house, I really wanted my kids to be able to sleep in their own bed. And so we never, even if they were like having a bad dream, they would come I would soothe them, you know, I'd put their music on, I would take care of them, and then they would eventually fall asleep back in their bed. That's just how we raised our kids. It was so nice to have her in my bed. It was so nice to like feel like there was another human being next to me. And um, selfishly, you know, understandably though, like it felt so good. Because when Jimmy died, I wanted someone to sleep in the bed with me. Ruby the dog is with me. Thank the goodness to the Rubies because Queen Ruby is like a gift it is really nice to have like a dog with you. She's been very therapeutic for me, but I wanted a human being because in grief, I would like, I would be careful how I was rolling around because I was like well-trained to like not upset my husband. I don't want to wake him up or, and then I'd like turn over and I'd be like, oh my gosh, wait, I'm, I'm all alone. You know, it was like disorienting every day and it still is disorienting and it's been over five months. So I desperately wanted to bring someone in my bed and my kids didn't, they didn't ask to sleep in my bed when their dad died. That wasn't the thing that people wanted to do. It wasn't even talked about um, because it had just been this thing that we didn't do. And I had to sit with the discomfort because I knew like that wouldn't be the right thing to do because my kids didn't want that or need that. It would have been for me. So I didn't, but she got sick. So she was in my bed and I loved it. (laughs) It was so nice to actually have this little human being next to me. And, um, you know, my husband died in our bed, you know, I woke up and, um, so there's sadness in that room and there's sadness in the bed, although I feel really close to him in there. We're not going to get into all that, but it felt nice to have a living something next to me and besides my dog. So when she started to feel better, I was like, eh, you know, you can sleep in my bed. It's fine. <laughs> it's totally selfish. And she said to me, she's nine. She said to me, you know, mom, I love you, but I don't think that would be healthy for our relationship. <laughs> That's what she said. I was really annoyed because she became the parent and I became the child. And I was like, no, but you can. It's not unhealthy. And it's not that I would say that's unhealthy for any of you that are doing that or even her going through grief or divorce and have your child sleep with you. It's just what she said because we've had firm boundaries in our bedroom. And she was right, though, because it would have been for me. It would have been what I needed and it wouldn't been what she needed. And so I was like, okay, yeah, you could sleep in your own bed. And she was very firm about that. The other thing that she actually was aware of that I wasn't, I think I mentioned this before. So the AT parenting community and the membership community that I have, once a month we do a support group call. So we have a Zoom support group call for the parents and we have a support group, a Zoom call for kids and we do one for teens. And so it's once a month. And my daughter participates in the kid one, which is really good because it really helps her. And it's actually helped me kind of hear how she's doing but more in a peer-related group. And as a total side note, if you want to know more about the community, you can go to atparentingcommunity.com. The doors will open up again for the community. I think the end of August, beginning of September. We open it up a few times a year. But if you get on the wait list, you get notified early. Sometimes I privately open it up just for the wait list and then I close it again. You can learn more about it at atparentingcommunity.com. So she was in the support group. And in the support group, we were talking about compulsions or the kids were, I just moderate it. 
And she said, yeah, you know, I have a compulsion. They were talking about bedtime compulsions. And she said, I have one where I have to say, love you and I'll see you tomorrow. And then my mom has to say, okay, I'll see you tomorrow. I had an inkling (laughs) that it was a compulsion, but I was like, because it felt so good for me too. And because of my own anxiety, you know, my husband was recovering from Achilles tendon surgery. And so he was sleeping And then I went, dropped the kids off to school and I went to get Starbucks for both of us, came back to give him Starbucks. And then I found him. See you in the morning made me feel good. You know, made me feel like she would be alive in the morning. And so it was really a compulsion for me to saying, see you in the morning. And it just felt good. It felt like, okay, I'll definitely see her in the morning. Again, magical thinking is showing up for me in my own issues. And so I thought... (laughs) It was one-sided. I was like, it feels good to me and she doesn't seem to care or be bothered. So it's our new thing and that's fine. So I kind of was thinking, I think this might be a little bit of a compulsion for me, but you know, with grief and stuff, I'm like, I'm not going to work on it. It's fine. But when she said that in the support group, I was like, oh crap, she knows it's a compulsion and we're both doing it together. I can't have that. So sometimes what we'll do for our kids, we'll do for our kids what we won't do for ourselves, right? So I said, in in the support group, we actually had this like conversation in front of everybody. And I said, whoa, we can't be doing that, right? I said, what what do you think we should do instead? And she said, well, mom, I think we should say, um, won't see you in the morning. And and then you should say, okay, I won't see you in the morning. And I was like, okay, that sounds great. Let's do it. (laughs) And I was not excited about it. And that night she remembered and she was like, she, I always say, I love you, boo-boo. And she always says, I love you, tutu. Um, And that's not a compulsion. We say that all the time. It's our thing. And then she said, won't see you in the morning. And it like crushed me. It was like really hard because like I have some PTSD, obviously from what happened and saying that out loud and having some, some OCD magical thinking going on in my brain right now, that was like really, really hard. And so we have to do the hard things that we tell our kids to do. And so I said, yep, won't see you in the morning. And that was it. And we've been saying that for the last, I think it's been the last two months almost won't see you in the morning. And it still bothers me. And sometimes exposures, you know, you don't feel that relief. Just learn how to sit in the discomfort of it. And so my my whole point is we play a part in these things. Now, those are some pretty concrete examples of like me having legitimate, probably clinical issues and my kids calling me on that, reining me in. But the only reason why they've been able to do that is because we've created a culture of facing our fears and doing that. They're, they're so well-trained. So get in touch with your fears and figure out how it shows up and then figure out how you can work on those regardless of whether it has anything to do with your kids or not. Do the work. You do you. Show up, walk the walk. My guess is it probably overlaps a little bit with your kids because it's impossible for it not to, but I don't want that to be an excuse of it's not, it's not impacting my kids. So it's fine. I can't tell you how many parents I've worked with in my practice who had just as many issues as their kids and never worked on them. And it's like, you really can't do that. You can't make your kids or encourage your kids to work on their stuff. And you're not doing anything. We have to be genuine. We have to be authentic. We have to do the work. It's never too late. You're not too old. You can tell yourself lies and say, it doesn't impact my life or it's not that big of a deal. or I've had it my whole life or it's really helping me or it's protecting me. Do you want your kids to say stuff like that when they're your age? No, we got to walk the walk, talk the talk do hard things as much as it sucks completely. (laughs) So I hope that was inspiring on some weird level. And I hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you are, I say this every time. So if you've been listening for a really long time and you haven't done it, it's nice to give back, hit a star, 
to rate the show on iTunes, Google Play, wherever you listen. Leave a comment. Let me know how the show is benefiting you. I appreciate that. That does help. And more importantly than anything else, please don't forget to find the sparkle in everything you do. I say that and it's not just a send off. It's reality because we only have our todays and we don't want to waste them. So find that sparkle in whatever you're doing, whatever you're eating, whatever you're watching, whatever activity you're doing, find something that makes you sparkle and enjoy the little things. And I will talk to you again next Thursday. Take care. Bye. Nope. Next Tuesday. My bad. (laughs) I'll see you later. Bye. Thank you for listening to the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. To get additional support raising a child with anxiety or OCD, visit Natasha's online school of on-demand classes at atparentingsurvivalschool.com. 